Good morning, Redemption Parker. I'm joining you as some of you recognize that were with us earlier in the year from my basement. I didn't know if that would be the case again this year, but nevertheless, here we are. Uh, some of you are aware and saw on social media uh, that this week has been a tough week for us as a faith family and as a church, one of our own. Uh, Steve Wood passed away on Thursday. I said Friday, but it was actually Thursday. And uh, the morning that he died, they actually let us know that he had tested positive for COVID and we had spent some time with him. And so we immediately went into isolation there. Uh, but Steve is a, a fixture in, in the three and a half years that we've been a church here with us. Uh, I always appreciate his kindness, his love, his generosity. Um, and he was just in a great husband to uh, my mother as uh, they spent, I think, 14, 15 years together. Uh, nevertheless, um, wanted to preach this morning to you. I was planning on it anyway, uh, but definitely wanted to do it even by this means because uh, we're, we're just in a tense, kind of obviously divided time uh, in, in a nation and in a couple days, we'll all have cast our ballots and, and we'll all be watching the news and, and to see what is going to happen there. And, and, and there's just been a lot of chaos all year long. And, and we knew going into this year, just with an election year, there would be chaos. And so uh, I, I want to just kind of speak into that this morning. And, and my aim this morning is not to, to tell you how to vote or who to not vote for, or, or even if you are going to vote, that, that's really not my concern. Uh, and so you can rest easy there, or, or some of you will be kind of offended by that, and you just want to make sure your pastor votes exactly like you, and I'm just not going to give that to you. Um, but nevertheless, my aim as a pastor is to lift our eyes, is to come to God's Word by the help of God's Spirit, and to kind of lift our eyes above the chaos, above all that's going around, uh, around us right now, and just get some perspective on that. So, so it reminds me of times when, when I fly and uh, it's just terrible weather outside and it's raining and, and there's lightning and, and they give us the go ahead to take off anyway. And, and you go through that and there's turbulence and you can see the flashes outside, but eventually you come up through the clouds and above the clouds and it is sunny and it is clear and you can just kind of see down on everything. That, that's my hope spiritually for us this morning that we would get that kind of higher eternal perspective to kind of give us a, a, a solid foundation for our hope, our joy uh, in this moment together. Now, now, before we do that, you need to understand, I am 45 years old, born 1975, so I am a child of the 1980s. And, and I know that some of the illustrations and, and movies I refer to are increasingly uh, missing the mark, you know, if I talk about the flux capacitor or, or whatever, because people are like, what, what is that? Uh, but, but, but you need to understand, in, in the 80s, growing up, man, that that was the, the height of the Cold War. And so every movie was just this super over-the-top uh, kind of patriotic movie, and I love them. And so uh, this week, my friend sent me this picture, uh, and some of you might recognize what, what's going on here. That's Dolph Lundgren, and he played uh, the, the kind of America's arch enemy in Rocky IV, and Rocky had his American flag shorts on, and it was just pitted as this ultra-patriotic kind of fight of, of freedom versus communism. And, and I texted my friend back and I said, man, that guy single-handedly helped me hate communists. 
But, but that was just kind of air we breathed. We, we, we said the Pledge of Allegiance in class every day, and, and we watched movies like Rocky IV and, and Iron Eagle and Red Dawn and, and all those things, and, and that's just who we were. And I would, I would go on to go to college and study economics and really macroeconomics and, and go to the former Soviet Eastern Bloc and study uh, communism and their economic policies and the transition. So, so I, was, I was invested in all of this. And uh, I would definitely, and, and even still today, call myself a, a patriot. But uh, something shifted in me, or, or rather I got a new lens to see all of that in 1993. 1993, when I gave my life to Jesus, I, I would learn later as I'd read the Bible that I was a new creation, and, and not just a new creation, I was transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son God loves. And I would read these passages of just how we are, are, are new citizens. We, are, we have a different citizenship, a higher citizenship that supersedes everything and, and everything else we, we have on this side of eternity. So I think of passages like Philippians, uh, or yeah, Philippians three twenty, Philippians three twenty, where Paul is writing to uh, the church that's kind of being oppressed and and they're going through hard things and and they had no political power or, or sway and Paul would just remind them with words like this. He said, "Our but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ." And so what is Paul doing? He's just lifting their eyes, lifting their spirits, lifting their affections and just saying, hey, things may not go well for you on this side of eternity and your citizenship may or may not work for you, but but there's something far beyond that so that our hope and our joy is not dependent on what happens Tuesday night. It's not dependent on any election, even if they say, uh, as they do at every election, this is the most important election in the history of our country. Uh, what happens Tuesday night just should not, should not, if you're a follower of Jesus, should not lead you to uh, either jubilation or despair. Uh, what, what I mean by that is uh, our hope, our confidence is not tied to how the numbers come in that night. Uh, if you're just over the top happy Tuesday night, th- then you, you might, that might reveal some things about where your heart is. If you're just depressed and, and in total despair, again, that will reveal some things. Uh, is your heart and your mind set on earthly things, temporary things, or the things above? Our citizenship is in heaven. And it's not because this election isn't important. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's not ultimately important for the kingdom citizens of God, for you and for me. So uh, this is not the first time in in history where the people of God have wrestled with what's going on uh, in the the earthly realm. In the year 410, there was this this watershed moment, 410 AD, watershed moment in uh, Western civilization. Uh, a ruler, uh, a commander by the name of Alaric led the Visigoths to invade Rome. Now, now what was significant about that moment was at this point, uh, the Roman Empire had officially converted uh, via Constantine to 
Christianity. But there was still kind of, kind of tension between the pagan religions and, and Christianity. And so shortly after, in, in a historical sp- perspective, uh, the, the, Roman, the, the city of Rome, which was known as the Eternal City, gets invaded for the very first time in 620 years. Can you imagine that? Like we as a nation, as Americans, are, are still in diapers at this point. But, but 620 years, no invaders had come to Rome. And now 410, they did. And the, the refugees began to flee and the, 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 the theological debate began to spin up. The, the pagans were blaming the Christians and, and their weak God for not protecting them. And, and the Christians were confused. Like, hey, if we've given ourselves to God, why isn't he blessing us? Why isn't he making Rome great again? Well, like what's going on there? And so they fled the city, uh, they got in boats, uh, many of them crossed over the Mediterranean and landed on the northern shores of Africa and came to the town of Hippo. And waiting there was a monk, uh, actually the bishop at the time of Hippo, uh, the greatest, maybe the greatest mind in Christian history, Augustine. And they were asking the questions, how, how could God let this happen? And Augustine would then take the next 16 years to write a masterpiece called The City of God, where he uh, wrestles with this. And and, and he he basically says, hey, kingdoms of this earth will rise and they will fall. And all of them will do that. But there is a kingdom. There is a city that is the eternal city. And the citizens of God have their hope in that city. That's my hope for this message. What, what Augustine, the greatest mind Christianity maybe has ever had, did in 16 years, I want to do in the next 20 minutes. So uh, not bold at all, but uh, nevertheless, I want us to just look at God's word. And so if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 21 is where we're going to be at this morning. We've been going all year through the King and the Kingdom series. And when I looked at the calendar uh, um, a couple months ago, and I saw that this was going to be the Sunday right before the election, I looked at the passage that was scheduled for that. And I said, this is the providence of God. This is amazing. I think I would, I would pick this passage, even if we weren't going through the Gospel of Matthew, because I just think God has a word for you and for me in this moment. Matthew chapter 21, it's going to be entitled The Triumphal Entry. Uh, what you need to know is that at this point in Matthew's gospel, he, he's, it's been building up to this moment. We, we know from the very first uh, verses of Matthew's gospel, he's been pointing the people of God, particularly the, the Jewish people, saying that the Old Testament, all the promises are pointing to the Messiah and the Messiah the King is Jesus. But, but Jesus now, three years into ministry, whenever he's healed someone or fed someone, he's been very careful to tell them, hey, don't tell anybody because he knew the time had not yet come. Now the time has come. Right before Matthew chapter 21, he heals two blind men who call him the son of David and he does not stop them. Jesus and his full revelation of who he has come to be and just his admission of that is now on full display. It is the last days of his life. And so we'll pick it up in Matthew chapter 21. And and what I want us to see is uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different than I normally do. Uh, I'm just going to look at 10 things, (laughs) 10 10 kind of... um, perspectives on who this King Jesus is, to just stir our affections and and, and our minds to set our hope on on things above, set our hope on the King, 
and the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 21. Listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. The first thing we see about King Jesus is he is the sovereign king. Do you notice that Jesus isn't just hoping there'll be a donkey and a colt? No, no, Jesus is orchestrating everything. We know this from the Bible that by all things were made by Jesus, all things are controlled by Jesus. He is the king who is sovereign. So he tells his disciples, you're going to go into this town. There's going to be a donkey and there's going to be a colt. And when they ask you, hey, why are you taking that? Here's what you're going to say. And they're going to let you. He's just, he's just giving them a preview because he is in control. He is the sovereign king. Well, let's, let's go on. Pick it up in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. What we see here is that Jesus is the promised king. Again, as Matthew's done throughout his gospel, he's pointed us back to the Old Testament and he said, this was promised. This is exactly what God promised. And he said, the day is going to come when the king comes, but he's going to come back not on a white horse, but on a donkey, a humble donkey. So he is the promised king. He is the one who fulfills all of the the prophecies about him. And so uh, we see that, that we go on to verse six. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches. John's gospel tells us that those are palm branches. This is where we get Palm Sunday. That'll become important in just a moment. They cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna! To the son of David, Hosanna. It means it's a shout of, save us, save us. And then they, they give him the messianic title, the son of David. So now the crowds are, are, I have come out to the city and the crowds that have come with Jesus and there's just this roar outside the city walls and you can hear inside the city, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. There is a proclamation that the Messiah has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They continue to shout, Hosanna in the highest. May, may this proclamation not just go into Jerusalem, but, but all of Palestine and, and to Rome and up into heaven. Hosanna, save us, Lord. You are the son of David. You are the promised one. And so what we see here is that Jesus, Jesus is actually the king of peace. There's kind of a, an odd contrast here that they're shouting the praises of the Messiah, but he's riding a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. But, but, but there's a purpose to that. 
He's riding a donkey. He's not riding a war horse. To ride a donkey is to proclaim by action that you are humble and you are coming in peace. This is so, so significant for you and for me. Because if Jesus came on a white horse the first time to destroy his enemies, all of us, all of us would have been destroyed. There would be no hope. Of course, he had the right to do that, but he comes on a donkey, uh, again, just uh, in line with his mission. He comes to bring peace, ultimately to bring peace between sinful man and a holy God. Colossians tells us that by the blood on the cross, he is reconciling men and making peace. So Jesus comes as the king of peace. He's coming on a donkey. They're shouting his praise and and they don't connect him with the king of peace. They're thinking he's going to be the king that overrules and overturns everything and, and leads the revolt. But we know that's not the kind of peace Jesus came to bring. Verse 12, he is the king of peace, but notice this, he's also the authoritative king, the authoritative king. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So, so this peaceful king that rides in on a donkey. He gets off his donkey. He walks into the temple and he starts to rearrange the furniture radically. I mean, who rearranges the furniture? The owner of the house rearranges the furniture. He's showing he has the authority over this house, but, but there's lots going on here. Uh, we, we know that he overturns the, the tables of the money changers and, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So this is Passover people, pilgrims from all over the Roman world that were worshipers of God would, would come to make their offering. And so they, the money changers, they're serving a good purpose. You had to change your local money into the, the temple money so you could make your offering. The problem with that is that they're not outside the temple. Where are they at? They're inside the temple. If you, if you understand the temple, there is this kind of concentric circles. And then the outer court, it was called the, out, the, the court of the Gentiles. See, Jesus is the king of all the nations. All the nations. He is the authoritative king, but, but it is the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations that he comes in and he sees just this, this massive kind of market going on. Now, this is the one place the one place on earth at this time where, where God-fearing Gentiles led by the Spirit of God could come and offer up their prayers and offer up their worship and connect with the living God. And so in that one place where they could pray and meditate and focus and worship God, there's just the bleeding of sheep and pigeons and exchange of money that they are invading, encroaching in the worship of the nation. The authoritative king is having none of it. He upturns the tables, but he is the king of the nations. He is is zealous for his house, and he's zealous for all peoples of the earth to come into his house. I mentioned before that the palm branches are significant. In Revelation 7, 9, one that we quote quite often, notice that the palm branches come back. But listen to Revelation 7-9. This is a future vision when when all of history comes to culmination. 
says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. See, the nations will bring the palm branches. The nations will come and worship with God. Uh, if you were to go from the court of the Gentiles, you would go one court in and you'd go to the court of women. So, so the Gentiles couldn't go into that court. Uh, that, that was, then you come into the court of the women and they couldn't go any further. You go into the next court and is the, the court of Israel. That, that's where the Israelite men could go. Uh, inside of there would be the sanctuary and they can't go in there. In the sanctuary, the priests could go in there and, and no further. And inside the sanctuary, there is a place called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, could he go in and make sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so set in, the, in the sanctuary, there was this, uh, this curtain, the, this thick, heavy curtain. It was a symbol uh, pointing to the reality that there is a barrier between a sinful man and holy God. And once a year, they were allowed in. We're going to see later in Matthew's gospel that it was on the cross that that, that this, this curtain in the temple gets torn from one side to the next and it has opened the way so, so that all people don't just go to the court of the Gentiles or the court of the women or the court of Israel or the court or the sanctuary. All people by the blood of Christ have access to the very throne room of God, to the holy of holy. So he is the king of all nations. Let's, let's continue on. Verse 14 says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Jesus is the king who welcomes and heals the broken. So again, he's doing physically what he's doing spiritually. He's, he's healing our blindness, uh, our, our, our deformities, our, our brokenness, and, and, and now they are welcomed uh, into the very Holy of Holies. Let's continue. Verse 15. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So, so apparently there were some children outside. They got kind of caught up in this catchy little tune. And, and like my children do, they just keep singing it. And they go into the, the, the temple and, and they're singing this. And the, the, the religious authorities, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they hear the children singing and they're indignant. Notice they're not indignant about uh, just the, the offense to God that, that, that the Gentiles can't come and worship and pray because of the money changers. They're mad at the children. And they're mad at Jesus because he's not stopping them. Look at what it says. He, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Again, that's from Psalm 8. He's connecting this with uh, his praise. And, in, and he is worthy of praise. So Jesus is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. That's the king we have. Now, if we were to go on, there are a couple other things that I want to point out in terms of this king. Jesus is the king who is going to his throne. But his throne is unlike any other throne in the history of the universe. Jesus will be enthroned in a few days. He'll be enthroned on a cross. 
And on that throne, he will make peace between God and man. His blood will be shed. And on that throne, he will tear the curtain in the temple. On that throne, he will establish his rule and reign forever and ever. He is the humble king enthroned on a cross. Again, just looking forward into the future, there's one more thing that I want us to think about as we go into this week. We've looked at nine of these things, or eight of these things, and I want us to look at just one more. This comes from Revelation uh, 19. I'll pick it up in verse 11. This is the end of temporal history, human history. Uh, Revelation 19. And we're going to see that Jesus is the king who will return in power to judge the nations. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. No longer a donkey. He is on his war horse now. A white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King who will return in power to judge the nations. Now, all these things, none of these things will be altered or tweaked in any way with regard to what happens in this election cycle or any election or any political movement in the history of mankind this is a rock-solid reality for us to place our hope, our trust, our, our focus on as the people of God in the kingdom of God. So how can you hold fast to this eternal hope this week? Let me just suggest a few things. First of all, let us look back. Maybe go over this passage with you and your family this week, but let us look back at the throne of our king. He rode a donkey to a cross. And praise be to God for that. If he didn't come that way in the first place, we would have no hope, but we have hope. He came as the humble, suffering king to die in our place for our sins. So let's look back and then let's look forward like we just did in Revelation 19. Let's look forward to his soon return in power. He'll ride a white horse to come and judge the nations. And, and right now, by grace through faith, we get to become citizens of the kingdom and we won't face that judgment because we will have the righteousness of Christ. And so that's the invitation. That's what matters most in this moment this morning. And then finally, let us pray through the lens of, a, of our eternal heavenly citizenship this week. Let us pray through the lens of our eternal heavenly citizenship. So, so I just want to challenge you and me. We, we are going to be tempted to just 
become news junkies maybe. You're going to be tempted to follow social media. You're going to be tempted to lament or or celebrate. You're going to be tempted to do a lot of things. I just want to say, can't we be a people of prayer in this week? Let's just pray. Let's pray for whoever gets elected. God commands us to do that. Let us pray more than we watch television. Let's pray more than we post on social media. Let's pray more than we worry or celebrate. Let's be this week a people of prayer. So I'm just calling us to pray in light of our heavenly citizenship. That's who we are. And that should change the way we see the world. Uh, My daughters, all four of them, are what people call TCKs, third culture kids. So, so if you're a missionary kid or maybe you're in the military, uh, a third culture kid is a kid who grows up uh, in a different culture, different from their parents' passport culture. So in, in my case, uh, three of my daughters grew up in Okinawa, Japan. My oldest daughter was from Thailand. And so uh, the, the culture that they grew up in was different than the culture I grew up in. And, and consequently, third culture kids have, have, have kind of a very broad view of the world, but, but they never quite feel at home. I mean, my kids are most comfortable in Okinawa. Their most, their comfort food is Japanese curry. And so when we come to America, uh, people say to them, Hey, aren't you glad you're home? And they don't feel like they're at home. And so uh, they, they don't know the cultural references that they don't have the, the cultural kind of, um, focus and and in some cases idols. Uh, And so uh, they never quite feel at home. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been given a new home. You've been given a new citizenship. You've been given a new identity. You should not feel at home on this side of eternity. Oh, I'm not saying you can't love your country. Love your country. But I'm saying there should be an uneasiness wherever you're at. There should be a longing for your heavenly home. There should be a living out of that kind of reality. And that's what God is calling the people of God to this moment and every moment to do. So in a couple days, half of our nation is going to be thrilled and half of our nation is going to be in despair. And honestly, I have no idea how that's going to work out. But I know this, the church should be a place where we have some perspective. And we, uh, among all the people in America right now, should be a place where there, there's room to disagree. There's, there's room to, to, to vote differently and yet know that our citizenship together is in heaven. So let us be a people that offers hope. For those that are just in total despair, let's remind people. Let's live in such a way uh, of uh, people of hope. Even if we voted like them, let's just say, hey, ultimately our hope isn't in this election. And let's, let's give them hope in that way. For those that are just over the top happy, uh, a day is coming probably not very long that they're going to be in despair again because all the promises on this side of, uh, of eternity in our political systems will eventually falter. And so we get to offer them a lasting hope. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom that has been given to us by the King of peace enthroned on a cross. So let's live, let's love, let's hope, and let's pray in light of the great, this great reality this week. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for these truths. 
I thank you, King Jesus, for who you are. I thank you that you came as a humble king on a donkey and that you're coming again as a powerful, conquering king on a white horse. Lord, I pray that if anyone has not yet placed their hope fully in you, that even in this moment, by grace through faith, they would do that. Lord, help us in the coming days to be people of hope to neighbors uh, that, that are wrestling or, or even celebrating in this moment. And let's point them to a greater joy, a greater hope. And let us be a people that are used by you. Let us not be comfortable on this side of eternity, but let us be a people longing for our heavenly home and living like that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.